Welcome to the Godcasts. Good. Because I didn't, didn't have to do anything. The speed of upload was incredible. Um, you must have really pumped up your um, um, Wi-Fi. Average. Oh, my upload is about 50 now. Instead of 0.5, which is quite impressive. It's good that there's something impressive about this podcast, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've nearly got to the end of the whole thing and I've just managed to get around to ordering some more my better microphone. <laughs> um, well, you never know. Depending on how many we get done, we might be able to use a, a decent microphone. Your, I mean, your end, obviously, of far more profesh this side but uh, what is yours what make is it oh this is the best one oh, the best make? make the best make mic mm. the best make mic is it sure is it sure it's oh. fairly sure yeah uh, uh, Sennheiser uh, I did yeah before we started yeah So, uh, Folkestone. Folkestone. Welcome to Folkestone. Folkestone. I think if you say it's Folkestone, people are going to be most confused. Well, I mean, at least I didn't offend everyone from Nigeria by saying that they're all late (laughs) and lazy. (laughs) Indeed. It's one of those things, though, isn't it? You could joke about anywhere, as long as they're not black. And as soon as you do that, you just go, I'm not saying, I'm not saying. <laughs> okay, let's do this. Cool. Hi there, everyone, and welcome back to this pilgrim's journey on our final week of this. What's the correct word, Dave? I don't want to say trudge. Um, this re- trudge. retreading. You've, you've used trudge and plod. And all sorts of words to explain to me. And none of them have been accurate enough, have they? (laughs) So, um, but yeah, but just before we dive into Folkestone, um, as you've sort of, because I know you you edit, so you're you're obviously listening back, is this what you thought it would be? Are there there things you thought that we talk about that we haven't talked about? Um, Do you wish you'd been more positive about people? Um, I just sort of lifted your mood for some of it, or, or are you happy with the happy with where it is? Um, I I don't know what I expected from it. Oh, good. So the bar was low. That's good. <laughs> well, it was as soon as I invited you to get involved. <laughs> I knew sort of level we were aiming at. There was just nobody else available, was there? Not of the same caliber. Let's let let's let that float. Let's just let that. <laughs> um, I I don't know what I thought. For me, I found this really good. I found it really um, helpful hmm. and interesting. Uh, I think often the conversations that we end up having sort of seem to drift quite a long way away from what I thought we were going to be talking about. But hmm. um, can I just stop a second and say there's massive hiss. Okay. 
it's been helpful for me personally to get back in touch with you uh, beyond this um and spirits you know i find i find good encouragement Mm. I, I feel the same buddy and um i don't know if like in maybe five years time we're going to do a video of us talking about the podcast and then maybe <laughs> five years on from that we can do some holographic you know it's technology yeah, I, I, I think you know the demand is out there for it I, mm. I think, you know mm. i know people like netflix and youtube are knocking on the door uh, although the... i think because i haven't paid my subscription <laughs> <laughs> So let's keep going. Let's, so we're going to Folkestone today. Yes, Folkestone. Um, so today um, I left the the luxury of the Dandelion Room, the Airbnb where I stayed the night and watched television for the first time in six weeks, six and a wow. half weeks, which was quite weird. And um, had three showers because the shower in the in the space was phenomenal. And you just couldn't get the dirt off with the first one, could you? So it's... Oh, well, I thought it would be good to, you know, go from having had no showers to three over some. Mm. Um, so I set off and I was meeting up with um, a friend from the church, a friend called Alan, who we'd, he was going to meet me at the church in Bonington where I was planning to stay mm. at St. Rommel's. Um, so I made my way down there. Uh, to meet him um, at 10 o'clock um, and then we were going to pick up the military canal again and, and start and um, just take that as far as you were going to pick up a canal yeah you know what I mean you're just being silly now behave no, just now though yeah just now yeah yeah um so yeah he was going to walk with me as far as Hythe um, and it was really good. It, the day started quite well, actually, weather-wise, but it did get pretty awful, pretty torrential. And we were both totally soaked by the end of it. But um, it was really nice walking. We talked a lot about personal faith, a lot about personal things. Um, Alan's had an awful lot of stuff going on in his life. It was one of those moments where, um, or those opportunities where you just suddenly have more time, more space. We've talked a lot about time and space. Mm, mm. And um, I've known Alan for several years. He's been on the edge of church um, and had found in church a sense of community that he really valued. Um, and that primarily was what really brought him to to come to church. He was He was searching for something spiritually. And um, there have been elements of the Christian faith that he struggles with and, mm. you know, things that he wasn't sure he could accept. And and actually on this day, we got to talk through a lot of those things, a lot of stuff about his life. And and it was an, a great opportunity for me to just learn more about him. Mm. Mm. Um, and probably an opportunity we don't get enough with the folks that we minister to. Mm. In our churches, you know, we we I think spend a lot of time trying to serve them, trying to know them, but but we know them on the edge of their lives often. Mm, mm. Um, and some of that possibly is because we don't do enough to, to get to know them better, or or the other side is that people, whilst they are part of a church community, it is sort of a fleeting in and out thing mm, a day mm. a week or a little bit. Um 
And I just, I think, got me thinking really about how much we know people, how much we're prepared to really get into the lives of people. Mm. Um, I, I think I said before, when I was in Cambridge, I really tried to make the month a home that was, or, or a house that was welcome, would welcome anybody, could, mm. would know that they could come at any time, um, and certainly encourage the children to to know that with their friends. Mm. Um, but but we need to go beyond that. Mm. Um, in in our desire to reach out and and really know the people around us. When I got to Folkestone, uh, to the church um, there, I, I was struck by how busy they were as a church. Now, we can talk about being busy as mm. a church and it not be a very positive thing, because I think often we're so busy with stuff, we we forget what it is to be church. Mm. Um, but on their website, they, they had this thing that talks about, it says, being an active part of the local community is our reason for being here. Because we love Jesus, we love the community that he has placed us in. Mm. And we want to see all people living fulfilled whole lives as God intended. Body, mind, spirit, all are important to God and to us. Mm. And I was really struck by that. I thought, what a fabulous um, ambition to have as church and statement to make to your community. It's pretty jargon-free, actually, isn't it? It is, in isn't terms it? Of, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it just says this is what we're trying to do. Mm. And... And firstly, I think there's an honesty in we're trying to do this. This is what we're trying mm. to be. Um, but it doesn't get wrapped up in too many super spiritual things. Mm. And I've always had this thing that I, I struggle with church websites that are out of date or, you know, just poorly put together. Um, and often it seems to me we can use a, a website as an advertisement of what we'd really like our church to be, but it isn't. You know, we can, we can paint this picture of welcome to and this amazing thing, but it isn't really the reality of what we are. But this one really, when, when I got there and I met people there and got to talk to the minister and have a look around, really got a sense that this was, this was true um, for people, that they... This church constantly had people coming into the church from the community, was was actively doing stuff all the time. They were busy with stuff. Um, and and I just thought it was a really encouraging um, place to be. Mm, mm. I, I think you're right that sometimes what is put online is more aspirational than, than accurate. Uh, and I think that's okay. I think it's okay to have um, something before you that you're aiming at, as long as you're not sort of over-promising what you can't deliver. Yeah, and I, and I think I said quite a long time back on this journey that I think one of the problems with churches is that we promise a lot. Mm. We make lots of promises as church, and and we don't satisfy them, we don't fulfil them. And, and mm. you know, we're rooted in a faith that's that's got its foundation in the promises of god mm. so i suppose we want to be people of promise but a promise broken is is a bad thing or mm. promise mm. forgotten mm. you know we can promise to do things and then they don't materialize and we commit ourselves to things um and it, often i think it's one of the, the failings of church we'll mm. do this we'll do this we care about this and then 
it doesn't in its practicality really sort of materialize mm -hmm. uh, and we wonder why people are disillusioned about church or not interested and often it's because their experience has been we've said one thing and it's not really happened we've told people we're going to care for them we want to mm -hmm. know all about them and then we're too busy doing other things yeah 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 definitely uh, and when you see it working, I mean, I know, um, I think it's a Bill Hybels quote, uh, there's nothing like the local church mm. when the local church is working well. Yeah. It is a, a beautiful thing when there's this lineup between uh, people's passion, people's gifting, um, and what God is doing in the community. Um, it, it's just, it is incredible to watch. Yeah, it is. It's fabulous. And, um, you know, you go back to that Acts chapter two bit about the church was the church met together regularly. It was it, it was engaged in in its community and it grew. Mm. It was in favour. Mm. Honestly, we really get engaged with our community and care about the community. Mm. The more we will be in favour. Um, mm. You know, I think there's sometimes a challenge for us to people are challenged with the idea of getting of church members and church leaders getting involved in other community organizations like parish mm. councils or mm. things like that. But I, I actually think it's an essential part of, of what we are. If we believe God's called us together, spirit filled, mm. gifted with all sorts of spirit filled um, talents we can we can serve our community not not just by saying well we're in the building come here let us do something but mm. by getting involved uh, i've talked um in churches about where, when they've been talking about wanting to start youth groups or things like that and i've said um you know look around you what 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 else what's happening is there a need or are there already things mm. we we had a youth group that we started in swayze and um it, it took a little while to get going, but it got to a point where we had over 100 kids on the books and regularly had 50 kids coming on a Friday evening. Mm. And for a small village, rural community, that was that was quite impressive. Mm. But it ran its its time. Um, and some of the other things that we did, we had a Monday night club for the younger kids, primary school kids, and that had been hugely successful. But it had been set up at a time when there wasn't anything else Four kids in the village, and there's no yeah. clubs, there were no scouts, yeah. no guides. Move on ten years, fifteen years, and there were then there were junior football groups, there was athletics things going on, there were scouts, there was guides, there was brownies, there was cubs. Mm. Several of those things were meeting in our halls during the mm. week, mm. and so the numbers just kept dropping in our uh, own activities. And you could sense people were like, oh, you know, what's going on? Why don't people come to our thing? And I said, well, maybe because there's already stuff out there. Mm. And what we need to do is go and volunteer, go and help mm. the scouts. Mm. The football mm. club. Mm. And rather than being in competition with them, mm. go and support them. Mm. I think, again, one of those things that church can do is find itself in competition with people mm. and their time. Um, so many kids do so much stuff now. I'm not sure it's always healthy the amount of things they do, but why why compete for that and then be disappointed that people don't come? Mm -hmm. And rather than do that, let's look properly around our community and say, well, we we could help with that. We could mm -hmm. get involved in that activity. Mm -hmm. That would be that would be good. 
And I think it's it's part of learning and relearning um, church after Christendom. You know, the, the church is not at the centre. The church is not in control. And uh, the church and state are, are separate. Um, and actually, we can have a far greater influence being salt and light if we scatter. Because um, one of the dangers, I think, I um, remember hearing uh, Andy Hawthorne a few years ago talk about their passion for sort of Eden projects, that what can happen so often is that people become a Christian and then gradually get sucked into this Christian subculture mm-hmm. and wake up one day and realise that all their friends are already in the church, are already Christian, mm-hmm. and that they've lost those connections with family, mm-hmm. friends, colleagues, because they've become so busy running the church stuff uh, or just getting so and so involved um, that their opportunity now, they've got to go and make friends before they can evangelize. Yeah. Um, and I think that is a genuine danger. Um, some of those people even, you know, I don't mean this in some sort of snobbish way, but um, some people, once they become saved, find themselves on a different path, you have a different vision for their life, for their family, can move out of an area. Um, and again, you just think that's so dangerous because mm. you know we believe that God scatters us, gathers us to inspire us and teach us and fill us, but then scatters us. Um, but the, the danger is that we don't scatter because we're too busy gathering. Yeah, and sometimes in our own leadership in churches, we can encourage people so much to, to be in the company of other Christians and talk about why it's good. And that, mm. is, that is genuinely good, mm. but at the exclusion of spending time with anybody else. Mm. Mm. And, and I understand the sort of semi-logic of that is, you know, if you spend time with people that aren't Christians, you risk being influenced by them or, or yeah. painted by them somehow. But in actual fact, if you're to know or, or keep in touch with what's going on in the world, you need to, to be meeting with people outside of your church community. Um, as you say, if you're saved and you live in a place, stay there, share it, share that experience with others that are around you, not just move on and, oh, I've got out, I've escaped. You know, but, yeah. It, this, 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 so the conversation sort of led me back to to pondering, thinking about hospitality. This whole thing that had set me out on this on this journey, really, and mm. um, and I've been trying to consider or trying to observe what local response looked like from churches and church communities to the refugee mm. crisis, to homelessness and things like that. Mm. I was I, I talked that evening with the minister there about how they were trying to respond. And it made me just sort of look at my own sort of conclusions. What did I see as I moved from the west of England across to the east of England? And mm. I'd been through several counties, from Cornwall through to Devon and Dorset, Wiltshire, mm. Hampshire, mm. Sussex, and, and within Kent now. And 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 there was a difference, and and it it struck me that it was the difference was about the urgency mm. with which people were dealing with the crisis and the awareness that people had of it, mm. and as a consequence, then the response to it, and and the 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 further east I seemed to travel, my my experience was that the churches were more aware of the crisis mm. 
more urgently dealing with it. Their response seemed to be better, mm. more equipped for it. Mm. Um, and and I wondered whether that was because of the proximity to to the entry point for for most of this. You know, the refugees that were coming in were mm. sort of more on the southeast coast, either through the ports or on beaches on you know um crossing the, the channel and i wondered whether that proximity to the problem uh, and i use that word mm. i know you know carefully i don't mean mm. that they're all a problem but to this issue mm. whether the proximity to it or the distance from it to the you know if you're if you're miles and miles and counters away from the ferry terminals are you really aware of the problem mm. is it on your local news are there other things that you've got to focus on? So I didn't know whether that was a real, was genuinely a reality or just this this snapshot that I had. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess any church, if it's serving well, will sort of represent its local community when it when mm. it gathers. Mm. Um, and so you know, in, in a church that is miles away from um, sort of a, uh, like you say, a, an entry point, uh, you wouldn't expect. Um, but I, I guess we can use that sometimes as an excuse, can't we? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and hide behind that, you know, but we're not in that sort of area. Mm. Um, whereas actually, if you start to probe uh, just beneath the surface, um, the reality is there are, there's, there's the call to serve everywhere. Yeah, and when I when I was kind of reflecting on on these things that I'd written on my actual journey, and the year later when I started writing these notes, I looked at some of the sort of statistics and some of the figures that the government had released on on responses across the country through different local authorities, mm -hmm. and statistically, the greater response or the response became greater and quicker. The further north we travelled up the country, yeah, yeah, um, and uh, um, the 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 numbers of people taken in by our authorities were more, mm, mm. and and what seemed to go alongside this was, mm. um, relative to population, mm. the north of England were taking more people than the south of England. Mm. Somewhere around a third of authorities had taken nobody at the time, you know weren't really engaged with it mm. but where there seemed to be a more active quicker response and awareness to the situation tended to be in authorities that you would say were less well off mm. Mm. where the community where, where there were more challenges themselves that they were facing mm. and some of the argument was that it cost less to house a refugee in a northern authority than it did in a southern one. Mm. All sorts of bits and pieces about house availability and housing. But it made me think, is, is actually the, the reason there's a better response up north, and this is a very broad thing, and I, and I apologise that it sounds so broad, because people are themselves closer to the challenges of poverty and uh, other sort of domestic issues that they're able to associate or, or mm. um, to feel the need more. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Mm. That, mm. Makes sense. Are they better I, able to understand the situation that refugees find themselves in? Because mm. 
they themselves know what it's like to to not have a good income, maybe unemployment, and all those sorts of things. Mm. And I think what you're saying about you know not just seeing the need but feeling the need mm. um, is very real. And you know, there's that verse isn't there that talks about uh, without vision, the people perish. And we can think of vision sometimes as being this big, clear, obvious, you know, revelation. But sometimes I think it just begins with that um, sense of a holy discontent, a holy dissatisfaction mm. uh, with the way the world is. Um, and actually without that, without that longing, that concern, that uh, seeing and feeling the need of others, we, we perish without that, actually. Mm. And I think personally that had happened to me. Um, there, were, there were a couple of things in my life that had made me at different times sort of think about the reality of, of homelessness in a first world country. Mm. democratic wealthy country that there was mm. a problem with homelessness mm. many years ago i'd been sort of on the edge of homelessness in as much as i i literally had nowhere to live and i couldn't find a, anywhere to be for various circumstances and and it came down to a farmer who i knew in in the village nearby who allowed me to stay in what was not a derelict house, but a disused house on on the land mm. for a while, whilst I tried to sort of get myself sorted out. Mm. And that had been a scary thing. It had really made me realise, I think, you know, I've read somewhere someone's talked about it can take three days. In as little as three days, you can go from being fine to finding yourself homeless, to speed mm. things can overtake you. Mm. And then in in Cambridge, and I think, you talk about that sort of dissatisfaction with what we see around us. It was that, for me, I suddenly became really dissatisfied with my own response mm. to what I saw. I used to, I lo used to love going into Cambridge, love shopping in there, just wandering around, people watching and things like that. Mm. Mm. But for many years, really, had sort of not even taken one glance at the people on the street. Mm. And something out of this walk made me really stop and question me mm. as I looked around me and what what responsibility do I have um, and out of that I came away and, and really was challenging the church because I felt God put on my heart that here was an issue though, though again I go back to statistics but at the time Cambridge was identified as, as just one of two what were called homeless hotspots in the country. Mm. One was mm. a, a London borough and the other was Cambridge. And I just thought, mm. how ridiculous is that? That Cambridge, with everything it's got and the affluence of the city, is a, is a homeless hotspot. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I really felt that God was saying to me, I am waiting for you people that, that live here to respond to this. Mm. why aren't you doing something even if you live mm. in the villages not in the city mm. you like to shop there you like to go to the cinema you like mm. to go and enjoy all the things and and so you want the city for all of those things mm. but you have a responsibility too mm. to, to mm. the other elements of what's going on yeah yeah and you know that was the challenge i took back to the church that we needed to get involved um and and do something about it hmm. and 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 i think partly i think we were a relatively affluent community really hmm. and couldn't see 
it wasn't something we saw as mm. our problem mm. to deal yeah. with. And I think you know we often use the phrase these days don't we, about you know oh first world problems you know mm -hmm. um, that because we are being bombarded by advertisers um, images of the good life of what we need or what we could have. Um, we look at things like our car and think, oh, it's you know, it's not very good, or the garden, or the house, or the telly, or the phone that we've got, whatever it is. Uh, and from for the vast majority of us, like ninety nine point ninety nine percent of us, there will always be something better out there that we could have or, or could want. Um, and so, because of that, we feel poorer in comparison. Forgetting that, for the vast majority of the world, they would look at our lives and go, oh, "That must be nice." You know, yeah. is it something like only 8% of the world's population have a car of any description? Um, and yet we feel that ours makes us sort of less than or um, mm. or whatever it is. Um, and I'm wondering if having um, had the experience, and I know the passion was still in you before this, but having had the experience of being a traveller, you know, being the stranger, being the person in need of hospitality, uh, if that gives you or gave you a, a sort of a fresh perspective on, on what that's like. Yeah, I think it did because, I mean, the nature of the hospital, let's be honest, I had hospitality every night. Mm. Of one mm. Every night, somebody, somehow, in different shapes and different ways, gave me somewhere to stay. Mm. Uh, sometimes that included something to eat. And, you know, people, sometimes their generosity was about spending time with me, uh, mm. washing clothes for me, good food, you know, praying with me. There were lots of different ways it was expressed, but ultimately every day I had somewhere to rest. Mm. Mm. There were a couple of occasions where I had to sort of make that happen at last minute. Mm. Mm. But I but I was, I had enough mm. to do that. I could make that happen, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and possibly, you know, as a... A minister uh, and as a sort of white male um are, are we describing as middle-aged at this point in your life do you think i'm still a whippersnapper yeah that's not how i've often <laughs> traditionally used that phrase but okay we'll, we'll apply it um but it might have been easier for you um yeah i i think um without trying to make myself self look like some sort of model I was quite an attractive um, package to to say yes to in hospitality. I think I, I think the yeah man okay. <laughs> one thing that we're going to do on one of these episodes is just get out a dictionary and look up the <laughs> definition of whippersnapper and attractive. You, you know what I mean. I wasn't some scruffy, um, bearded, dirty. Um, heavy laden with carrier bags of clothes and any of that sort of stuff say i'm white male middle class uh, middle class ish working class really but you know where we mm -hmm. struggle with all these things middle age mm -hmm. and yeah relatively easy sort of thing to say yes to to welcome into your mm -hmm. house mm -hmm. if i had been truly someone that had been on the on the road for weeks or living rough for weeks and hadn't had a bath or a shower and had one pair of, you know, one set of clothes and had, and had knocked on the door without having sort of prepared my, 
you know the, the way beforehand would i have got the same response i i will have to always hope that the answer to that question is yes for 59 or 50 times you know that for each of those places they would have welcomed me similarly and i think for my spiritual soul i need to believe the answer is yes yeah to yeah that. Is that a dog I hear? Yes, I tried to meet the monk in time, but of course they never give you a proper warning before they oh. for the park. Um, yeah, and, and I guess there's a really interesting question about how much any one of us can ever fully enter into someone's experience mm -hmm. um, to in order to empathise and, and sympathise fully. Um, and I, I, I wonder sometimes if... The person you've just described, you know, the person with carrier bags of of, of clothes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, my suspicion is, if they turned up at church, they would be welcomed, and and the church would 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 sort of bend over backwards to um, to make them feel welcome and and do what they could for them. Uh, the more interesting challenge is not the obvious outsider, um, perhaps the person who feels an outsider because of doubts or because of their sexuality or mm. because of their family or whatever it is um or, or the way that they speak or the place that they're from or whatever it is um it's how do we build it into our dna into our ethos that everyone really is welcome yeah um and that goes deeper than like, as we've said before just going out and, out and saying well you're welcome you know we will even this label, this category of people will even welcome you. Yeah. Um, somehow it's um, it's more of an atmosphere and ethos. Yeah, I can remember a conversation in church when we were talking about some changes to the constitution, which I felt were quite archaic and unnecessary and mm. sort of um, labelled us in a way that was restrictive mm. and... and uncomfortable but also as a consequence sort of labeled everybody else and one of the responses was people were sort of afraid that if we watered down our constitution and in doing so ourselves somehow we could have anybody come into church you know we could have anybody and they might come in and change it and, and yeah. I was, well that's the plan mm -hmm. if you want anybody to feel like they could come in. I mean, it got as extreme as somebody that was suggesting that we'd have some Muslims join and then they'd want to take over the church and change. Mm. And you just think, how do you get to that thought process? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I, think that that's the best thing they've got to do for themselves. But... And also for the fear of a worst case scenario. Yeah. It's yeah. very, very easy to dance, you know, so we're, so, so we better not change anything just in case that highly unlikely worst case scenario ever happens. Uh, yeah, I think it's it is it is a failing of church often that we we look for the worst possible outcome in mm. a situation mm. and then apply ourselves based on on that. Yeah, and yeah. it limits so much what we do. Oh, we've got to be careful because this might happen. Mm. Mm. But it might. But what if it doesn't? Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of ironic that as people of faith <laughs> and hope, uh, we can often let our fears rather than our hopes um, 
drive us yeah. into fineness. Yeah, driven by fear, exactly. Mm. Rather than be driven by hope and anticipation and expectation that God is moving as you become more of a uh, open church, welcoming mm. people. Yeah, we fear. Oh, we're afraid that this this will make us weaker, or this mm. thing else mm. will happen. Um, and, and I think it works in a number of ways. I think um, it can prompt you to not do things. Uh, but some things that we do do are driven by fear. Um, and I, you know, I've sort of noted a number of times the, the whole climate crisis that we're facing. Um, a lot of stuff that comes out about that is to do with fear mm-hmm. uh, rather than we love this world because God created it and it's beautiful. Uh, and of course we should care for it because how could you not? Um, surely the Christian response to this, the, this climate thing is not to ignore the, um, the crisis that we're facing, but it should surely be driven by love rather than fear. Absolutely. The, diff- the problem is if it's not directly affecting us, yeah. then yeah. we don't care so much. And so, yeah. And that, I think, is the real sadness about what we're seeing now, that there are some sort of tentative steps to making proper changes. It's because it's affecting us, Mm. not somebody Mm. in another part of the world Mm. where it's their problem, not ours. And Mm. that seems to me a very Western sort of cultural reaction to things is often, well, it's not our problem. Mm. Mm. somebody else's we're doing okay we you know the fact that we can so often be major contributors to the problem that then affects somebody else we yes and as you say it should be driven and so that's why it becomes fear Mm. because it's now going to affect me Mm. i think we're you know as we see changes you know really start to see regular constant change to the environment to the weather pattern Mm. in our own country we're starting to get a bit afraid. Yeah. Like, oh, I'll get afraid about there being a drought and a hosepipe ban or mm. you know, mm. the change to, to the environment because it will affect me. Therefore, no, the fear is not for the environment. It's for how it affects me. Yeah. That's yeah. a really sad thing. And, mm. and I think we can apply that to lots of things. Instead of being afraid of the situation that other people find themselves in, afraid for the homeless. Mm afraid for the refugees, mm. afraid for using our responses driven by our own fears of our own security and our own place mm. where we feel comfortable. Mm. We should be fearful people. We should be fearful of, of abandoning others to, to, to a fate that we could, we could help with. We should yeah. be fearful. Yeah. We should be fearful of standing in front of God one day and him saying, but what did you do about it? Mm, mm, mm. You know, you kept yourself mm. comfortable. Mm. Passage in Matthew 25 that sort of spoke mm. a little bit here about, um, there's a bit, and, and it's the King James version. And sometimes I quite like the King James poetic sort of language. And it's mm. about what we do for others. And Jesus is responding to what we do for others. And he says, The king will answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And that word, inasmuch. How much did you do for them? them? And that's a question we should be afraid of 
if we're not just mm. constantly deliberately looking to the needs of others in the world. Mm. And sometimes the world is just outside the door. It doesn't yeah. have to be the yeah. other side of the world. Yeah. I, I, and, you know, what we were saying there about we, we don't um, get affected by it until it affects us. Uh, there's something so beautiful about those words there in, in Jesus' parable um, that what you do for them, you do for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm so blessed. I'm so lifted. I'm so um, honoured when I see one of these brothers of mine getting fed or clothed or welcomed. You've done it for me. You know, that him, the king of the cosmos, is not so far above others that he he, he can't, um, that it doesn't not affect him. You know, and and I think that's um, that's part of the challenge. There is not just to do it, but to get to that point um, where it it, de- it definitely does affect us. Yeah, and I think um, the, the other thing that sort of goes hand in hand with this is that we we are privileged to live in technologically advanced parts of the world where there's a lot of research that goes on, a lot of education, a lot of information. Mm. We cannot most of us in in this country in western countries cannot say we don't know mm. the things that are going on in the world we simply can't say that because we do know it yeah. and also we've we, we are fortunate that you know technology can be some of the problem the way we use technology and industrial development clearly has been a problem um, and we are fortunate that we've been able to, to develop different things in our communities in our countries which means maybe we are no longer the most uh you know the worst polluters in the world and things like that but we have been mm. we have been for a very long time mm. and the the state that the world's in now is very much down to the things that have happened in the past <clears throat> and we get very good at mm. pointing our fingers at people now in other parts of the world that are less well off and telling them what they've got to do to clean their act up and mm. forgetting that it took us decades and decades and decades to clean our act up. Yeah. Yeah. And we took yeah. advantage of our privileged position for so long. Yeah. And now we, we quickly want to say, well, if you stop doing this and you stop doing that, that'll help. Mm. We, there needs to be more. There needs to be a bit more humility, mm. um, a, a little bit more awareness of our past and our contribution to, to the future and to, to the now and not just point the finger at people that are still, because of their relative poverty, doing things that we think, oh, well, we shouldn't be doing that because that pollutes or that mm. or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, uh, for those of us who are, you know, approaching these issues with faith and, and hope, uh, there is, there's also the hope that when we do feel apathetic or... Um, when we are distant from an issue, uh, we believe in the God of love who can pour his love into our hearts mm. and we can always ask for, for more of that, you know. And so Sometimes I guess there have been times when we just have to come to God and say, I, I am blank on this, you know. I, I, I'm not as concerned as I should be, but you can, uh, I can't just generate love, but but your love can flow through me into the situation and somehow becoming a conduit for, for what we haven't got. Yeah, and and we don't always easily have answers. It's not always a case that we can just sit down and say, well, God, what do you want us to do? 
it, it clearly isn't that easy. But that's not an excuse for not asking the question. Mm. For not mm. engaging spiritually as God's people and saying, but what could we do? Mm. What more can we do to make a difference? How can we mm. be a community of God that seeks to to share and live mm. hope and grace and love and mercy and all those things to other people, mm. wherever they are in the world? Yeah. And if the answer to that question is bigger than you and bigger than what you think you've got time and capacity for, it, it's probably right. Mm-hmm. It's always going to be a vision that calls us out of and and leads us to depend on God for it. Yeah. If it's something that we can do in our own spare time or with our own resources, it probably isn't the vision of the kingdom that we need. For sure. And and there's that thing that, you know, I think often our church as church, we limit our impact on the communities because we limit it to our ability. Mm. What mm. what can we do? based on what we look like now mm. so you know we we look at our resources and say well there are 40 of us or 60 of us or 100 of us and this is our makeup and so there's not a lot we can do but what about god yeah right what god yeah. wants to do and what god can perform through us if we are brave yeah. enough to mm. believe that he wants something dramatic to happen um, yeah. so so the scope of our expectation is mm. by why we look at ourselves humanly mm. rather than mm. spiritually and as as people of god with every ounce of his power mm. at our disposal yeah his concern and his his desire for the world to be better all of that is at our disposal not just well there's only two of us available yeah yeah yeah. and um, I could do two hours or yeah. you know what I mean um, I, I think I think we forget how what a ridiculous start we had you know that uh, actually the church was launched with 11 mm-hmm. people stood up on a mountain um, and even then Matthew records that some of them were still doubting <laughs> the resurrection um, so this was not a perfect start yeah. And the call was to go into all the well, world, every every nation. Yeah. These eleven, these eleven people that are scratching their heads, going, it, "It's not that is Jesus alive from the dead, isn't it?" Saying yeah. that to me, um, I think we forget that sometimes. You know that uh, I think we've fallen for um, the model of a very uh, business-like driven um, you know, five-year plan kind of church. Uh, well, that's not how it started. <laughs> yeah, I think I might have mentioned before that. Um, several years ago in in Swayze, we got into a partnership with a lot of other churches around Mm. through Youth for Christ and um, another youth um, organisation called um, West Cambridge Youth Ministries, Wickham or something like that. Mm. And um, what they did was they brought some people together and people from different churches that were involved in youth work and children's work. So we had churches that were in rural communities, city churches, all sorts of things. And we came together every quarter over two years to to share some experiences that we had, share our challenges, get some ideas about things that worked and didn't work and, and just basically encourage each other. Mm. And one of the sessions was about 
if you're going to go back to your church now, um, we want you to, to write what your mission and vision of a youth work in your community is. And Dawn and I were on this thing. Dawn was one of our deacons at the time, and she was sort of heading up youth activities. Hmm. And we we sort of sat there and we came up with this thing, which was that our vision was that every child in Swayze hear about Jesus. And that was where it started. And then over the time during the session, it kind of got watered down and watered down because we started thinking, well, no one in church is going to see this as, a, as achievable. Yeah, yeah. No, we're going yeah. to have to let's be realistic. So let's say 20% of, of the 16 to 20-year-olds or something. Mm, mm. And we were talking to the one of the, the leaders, and he said, how did you get from that, yeah, every yeah. child in Swayze to hear about Jesus, to that? And, and it became this sort of sad realism yeah sort of yeah. and mm. by the time we went away we he was saying what would jesus want mm. he mm. want what does god want every child mm. in swayze to hear the name of jesus that should be the ambition not what do we think we can manage to do yeah. yeah. massively often, different we shape what we do by what we think we can manage not what mm. we think god can do yeah yeah um, it, um, I don't know that every child in Swayze has yet heard the name of Jesus, but it's a much better ambition. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, absolutely. So that was Folkestone. Yes, indeed. Indeed. The next next chapter is endings. Yeah, moving on to a place called Warmer, and um, yeah, so I think you're know, definitely starting to think about getting to the end of the journey. Um, I just hope there's somebody there that just every every time you got lost just kept saying, warmer, warmer. Uh, 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 dreadful. That was a proper joke, that was. No, that was dreadful. Uh, okay, fine. But what, what, what the listeners won't see is that I pulled a face. To, so I knew that I was above that joke. So I both had the joke and had the irony of knowing it wasn't going to be funny, but I told it anyway. <laughs> but um, that doesn't work on a podcast. No, it doesn't at all. There we go. Yes, tomorrow, Walmer. I'll Amazing. Thanks, Dave. Um, and me. Dave, <laughs> tell me about the pilgrimage. Wow. Right. And we're going to start with day one, which is Land's End, Penzance. Yeah. Fab. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of this Pilgrim's Journey. How are you doing, Dave? I'm good, thank you. You? Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm good. I've, I've got a lot more going on in my screen than you have. You've gone for <laughs> plain, plain. Is, yeah. that be, is that because you're a control freak? No, it's, you know, simple, minimalist, sort of. Simple, yeah. Simple. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, I might change it next week, you know. I might, if I'm allowed outside again, I might, you know. Do you get a smoking break? I think that's what happens now, isn't it? Only if someone says like to me. <laughs> Amazing. Well, uh, David and I have known each other for... Far too long. 20-odd years? Yes, I know. That's really scary. 
we were in um, we were in college together, which is unbelievable because of the very obvious age gap between us. But um, we we got chatting in college because there's nothing else to do, and we found a real shared passion for mission, and especially I guess digital mission, but yeah. doing things sort of wellish and uh, trying to trying to push um, push what's possible. And uh, although we've gone very different directions over the years, we've uh, we've kept in touch. Uh, and um, Dave, you wanted to share a bit more about a journey you did five years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Um, I was just thinking, 20 years, I've known you longer than I've known my children, I think, almost. So but you have, you, have, you have got to stop calling me Sunny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I knew you when you had more hair as well. A lot more hair. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah t- the time has not been kind. But... <laughs> um, so, so, yes. Yeah, you, you, I did. It was your sabbatical, wasn't it? It was, yeah. So that was in 2017. Although my sabbatical, I think, had been due in 2014. Um, And for various reasons, it got put off and it got put off. And I'd had ideas then about what I wanted to do, which revolved around writing and and reflecting on uh, something to do with the, the playful God um and god and play mm. and, and i even though i'd never got around to actually doing my sabbatical i'd actually read quite a few pieces and made some notes and, and written quite a lot of stuff over that that sort of between 2014 and 17. and when i got to actually thinking about doing the you know what i was going to do for my sabbatical i realized it was almost pointless <laughs> taking the time off to, to do what I'd already done. I'd already yeah, yeah. done the reflecting that I needed to do on that. Um, and then out of the blue came this idea of maybe walking. Mm. Um, I'd tried walking before and I'd quite enjoyed it. <laughs> that, that, that was mainly due to the driving van, wasn't it? <laughs> Indeed, yes, of course. Yes, yes. Thank you for your silliness. Um, yeah, so, so 2017, well, 2016, came up with this idea of doing the, the walk. And initially had thought, oh, I could tag on to some of the sort of, I guess what we would call commercial pilgrimages that are available now. Mm. Um, but didn't feel that that's really what I sensed God was calling me to do. Mm. Um, and I made some contact with a group called the Pilgrimage Trust, who, who are a UK-based organisation. And at the time, that consisted of just two guys. And they were basically looking to try and open up pilgrim routes in the UK that had been forgotten or abandoned. And mm. were inc- encouraging people of all faith and no faith to encounter what pilgrimage can maybe offer and what it can do, not just... The practicality of walking or or the places you can visit that you might not visit but the spiritual uh, element of it and i talked a little bit to them mm. and, and in that conversation came up with this idea of walking from land's end to canterbury mm. um and uh, just a little just a little walk. just a little stroll yeah you know, you know knock that off in a day or two and yeah, that'd be fine. No, no biggie. Start small, isn't it? Yeah, start yeah. small, do something bigger next time. Yeah, and um, 
yeah, I think I don't I don't know what it was that attracted me to that. I suppose the the sense of the remoteness of starting in someone somewhere like Land's End, Cornwall. That sounds terribly offensive to anybody that lives in Cornwall. It does indeed, yes. Yeah. But but that's sort of it's a good point to start a walk anywhere in the UK, isn't it? At Land's End. At Land's End. Oh. Seems like a good place to start. John O'Groats wasn't on my, my list of places to visit. Um, but I was intrigued. There, there was oh, so we're, about, we're offending the people of John O'Groats? Yeah, I think okay. let's offend everybody. Wow. Just in the first episode, and then <laughs> it doesn't matter. No one else will listen to the rest of them. So that's that what we're going to do. Good. Yeah. All good. Um, yeah, I was intrigued by Canterbury and the sort of um, just what drew people there, the various sort of things that have happened there that drew pilgrims first to the place before it became what it what it is now. And then beyond that, people that went to mm. follow in the footsteps of others anyway. Mm. And so I came up with this idea of this walk. It, it sort of started to, to roughly estimate how far it would be and it seemed that it, you know, we could do something that was about 500 miles, um, which at the time didn't didn't sound as frightening as it did on day one. <laughs> and I actually set off and realised that I was going to do 550 miles. Well, wow. but and and then I I was kind of left with but why? Hmm. You know, I can take some time away from church life and the pressures of ministry and a time to get closer to God, but but with with what other purpose and to physically challenge myself. And at the time I'd been doing some work in Cambridge, which is where I was ministering in a church near to Cambridge at the time. And I'd been doing some work with uh, homeless people, hmm. um, with the community, and, and was also um, very intrigued at the time with things to do with um, refugees and asylum and mm. um, um, was finding myself with this question in my head of, which was really asking what does hospitality look like yeah. in the UK right now when there are so many people trying to get here when there are people uh, sort of cast out people on the edges of, of society in general what does what does and what should hospitality look like Mm. not just broadly in the UK, but what about within our Christian communities? Mm. What, what is the face of hospitality? What would it look like if I turned up on the doorstep or I called someone and said, I'm going to be in your area and then see what they offered? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was quite brave initially and did imagine that I would just set off from Land's End and hope to find somewhere to stay every night. Mm. Then I quickly lost that bravery. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I am, people that know me know I, I quite like things to be organised. And so that was not something I, I felt too comfortable with. And so what I actually ended up doing was uh, from the summer of 2016 into the autumn, I actually sat down with a, a friend from the church and planned a route, worked out a route, um, that would take me through some significant places, um, mm. but also would allow me to hopefully find a church or a community somewhere at the end of each day where I could stay that night. And 
we plotted out this route, found churches and Christian communities, and and basically I wrote to all of them um, and said, this is what I'm doing, this is who I am, would I be able to stay in your church overnight? And the response overall was, was remarkable. I think of the sort of 49, 50 churches or people that I contacted, um, uh, there was slightly more than that, I guess, because there, there were one or two that that said no, and that was it, and it was just. Do we want to name and shame? No, I think oh, okay. we'll we'll not do that. Bit. Um, we'll name and shame the ones that no, we won't. No. Um, <laughs> so there were one or two that just said no, um, and in in looking at a map and trying to work out, oh, there's a church there. You discover that. There is, but it's now someone's house or it's a carpet okay. shop or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, but I actually managed to find uh, somewhere every night that yeah. agreed that I could stay or that they would find me hospitality by the time I arrived. Yeah. Um, and so I was able to plot this, this route out um, and was looking at not really... It, this wasn't about the physical challenge. I wasn't trying to march 25 miles every day. And so it was about 12 miles a day that I was going to walk. I wanted to be able to, to take in what I was doing. Mm. Um, I did need to remind myself of that in the first week, but I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, so there's, there's some big stuff in there, Dave, about trying to understand the whole refugee asylum seeker um, mm -hmm. sort of um situation through the eyes of i'm going to make myself a stranger so i'm going mm -hmm. to go somewhere where nobody knows me and that, that's quite a powerful sort of response i, I remember because uh, you're not the only one that's been on spiritual journeys i went to um uh, ethiopia <laughs> just going to drop this in because we won't get chance uh, to talk about me um, okay and uh, there was a tear fund uh, trip and a whole bunch of us from wales uh, went over and um, we flew into uh, airport in Addis Ababa, and then we drove for the first day just down south. Uh, and we were told that in some of the communities we were going to, uh, for, especially for some of the children there, we were going to be some of the first white faces that they'd ever seen. And I wasn't, I mean, we've been told this, but I wasn't prepared for um, being the only group of white people in this predominantly sort of in a black area, Ethiopia. Uh, and it, it was a real eye-opener into how vulnerable it feels, how yeah. different you, you feel. And nobody's making you feel that way. Nobody's going out of their way. Uh, certainly, I didn't experience that. You know, maybe, maybe others did, right? I didn't. Uh, but it is that sort of, it's an eye-opener. It, it's you're seeing it for the first time through someone else's eyes. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess there is that vulnerability. And particularly that first day i i took the train down uh, to penzance and was met in penzance by a uh, a, a vicar who uh, worked a circuit in in that area out, out near land's end um but on that journey down i got everything in my rucksack and i was heading off there with this seven week plan mm. of all the places i was going to end up I've always been fascinated by maps. And so that that was that did sort of feed part of this sort of idea of the walk. Yeah. And coming up with a route myself, trying to find the oldest roads or tracks or routes or or those that have been established well. Mm. 
but that that sort of journey down just thinking but what if they've forgotten or yeah, yeah. You know, just it just doesn't work out what if the path yeah. doesn't take me where i want to go or the timing doesn't work or yeah, yeah. um and but but there was this i guess i had a real sense of peace going down there that this was definitely the right thing to do i mean it meant i left my kids in the care of the church mm. um which was you know a fabulous thing to be able to do to know that they were going to be looked after for that time and um and just stepped away from everything mm. um it was exciting for sure um i've i've walked and hiked and done all sorts of things but yeah there were certainly some I'm not sure whether anxiety, but some some sense of just unknown what's coming. Yeah. Um, and I got some thoughts. You know, I have I, at the time I had my own thoughts of of what I thought hospitality was like in our country. There were some negative things that that I I'd felt and seen, and things I'd picked up, and some good stuff. And I was clearly I was hoping to to experience good stuff mm. from our churches, from the Christian community. Mm. Um, but it was all yeah it was unknown and I think sometimes we perhaps in this world we live in in you know in the country where mostly we are not at risk mm. uh, generally our lives are fairly pampered and we're mm. comfortable and we don't have to step out of of our comfort zone often we don't do that even for a few minutes so to step away from everything and go out and be on my own mm. did feel kind of a bit of a risk in a way um but it was it was a good one to be doing it felt definitely like it was the right thing to do yeah i mean it, interestingly now i suppose for me here i am five years on mm. and in just a few months time i'm starting some work with the home office yeah working with asylum and refugees and yeah, yeah. So, so somehow mm what was ticking around in my head those five six seven years ago has still been doing that yeah has led me to to do something really exciting now so. mm. and, and the other thing because i know you know we, we want to crack on in a minute with, with day mm. one but the other thing you sort of mentioned there was about um the pilgrims trust and, and the guys that you talk to there and this whole thing about um obviously there's a physical journey but it's not it's not a hike you know it's not a tourism thing uh it's a way in which you're trying to make space to encounter god and to reflect mm -hmm. on, on what he's doing in you in other places in the, in the moment and, and the interesting thing for me is you, you can't you can't manufacture that you can't make that happen it's not something you can order or buy uh, we were watching something a while ago with a group of celebrities that did a, a pilgrimage together and quite unexpectedly for one or two it became this spiritual journey yeah. very meaningful very emotional uh, and for others it was just a jolly you know it was just just mm. a walk um so what I, I don't know if you've got any sort of reflections on uh, what what for you made it that i suppose there was a sense of expectation going in uh, that you wanted it to to to, to be a, a spiritual journey as well as a physical one uh, but like you say it, it, it's not something that comes easy is it obviously the, the focus often is on where and when what you need mm. to buy and who you need to talk to um and all those sort of practical arrangements uh, how do you think those things become a spiritual experience I think 
uh, I mean, what was key for me, I think this will answer the question eventually. You know that it takes me a long time to get to the point. Roughly, roughly <laughs> five years between thinking about doing something. <laughs> the first week was really interesting for me because those first couple of days when I walked, I, I found myself, um, it, it was less spiritual and more functional, mm. uh, mechanical, um, and I, I think I picked that up on some of the reflections that yeah. that in that first week, I walked, I marched. I mean, I've been in the army, so I have this sort of yomping uh, approach to going anywhere. Um, yomping, that's a new word for me. Yomping. You must yomping. have heard of yomping. Yomping with God, David Mann. Yes. No, that's a new, that's a new word. Um, it's a good old army term, but it's about getting somewhere A to B quickly. Yeah. And... What I ended up doing, I sort of looked at how long it would take to get to where I was going. Mm. And in the first week, I arrived there a couple of hours early every day mm. because I've, I had not, it took me a while to get into the spiritual um, possibilities, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and possibly as I look at the reflections in that first week, even they are slightly more mechanical. Mm if that makes sense, mm. um, less, um, less reactive to actually what was going on. Yeah. Um, so it was quite a challenge to initially to, to well, you had to allow myself into that space. Uh, I think probably, again, as I said before, I like to be organized and perhaps I'd got in my head some thoughts about what I expected of God and mm. um, yes. how things would work out. Oh, that's the bit you can't plan, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and it took a while. Just took that first week, and, and and for me, this was kind of the blessing of the length. Seven weeks was gave me space to not to waste the first week, but in that first week to settle into what was possible. Yeah. Later. Hmm. And I definitely feel by the end of the journey, I was I was walking every day with a different approach and a different mindset and a different mm. expectation of what could happen with god that day mm. um, and that's not to say things weren't happening with god in that first week um they were perhaps just slightly more of a struggle to to reach those places um, yeah. or, or see the opportunities yeah um and i think again in the first week there are a couple of the things that i reflected on that picked up on on that that i was so focused on getting from A to B, I missed sometimes or, or looked back and thought that was an opportunity missed or, mm, mm. and maybe it wasn't, but you know, I, it, it certainly shaped me to slow down yeah, yeah. in the rest of it and make sure I got the most out of every day. And there's, there's something about, um, there's, it's, it's all learning, isn't it? Because there are, sometimes you need to miss a few opportunities to go, I'm not missing the next one. You know, yeah. it's, it, it opens your eyes to stuff, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah, you've got to be in the place for that to happen. Mm. Um, and I think, again, because we're so busy, we, yeah. and, and in order to, I think most people in ministry will recognise that in order to do the job that we do, to, to carry out this this calling you do need to be organized and that organization sometimes can remove the spontaneity of the spiritual spontaneity that 
actually is, can be really powerful in our lives. And so mm-hmm. taking this break really was powerful for me in that way. Yeah, yeah awesome. Well, we should say as well, uh, while you were walking, you were keeping a, a sort of a journal mm. and you were sort of um, updating Facebook with all kinds of little thoughts and pictures and, and comments. Uh, and since the, the the walk, you've also sort of put the, all of that in one place and, and and written your reflections. So as we do this, we're going to be diving into some of that as well uh, as, as we go through. So hopefully it'll make sense. Hopefully it will just be well. Yeah. But I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, no, me too. So, yeah, I did these sort of daily Facebook posts. People were, were following me on the journey and were able to see where I, where I was actually traveling. Um, and when I got back initially i thought oh I'll, I'll write something up straight away i had three weeks left of my sabbatical and i got back and i just couldn't just couldn't mm. find words nothing mm. was was coming and mm. i tried a couple of times and it took me until just before a year after i set off that it occurred to me maybe the best way to to reflect on on those reflections mm. Mm. was to do it a year on day by day and that's what i did so i i committed to each day mm. one year on looking at what i put on facebook and the things i'd written in my journal mm. and reflecting a little bit more and i put them into i laughingly call it a book but but a, a reflection journal and that's then mm. people have read that and i've looked back on that and it sort of it was looking at that recently that made me realize gosh it's five years mm-hmm. and it would be good to i think in in the introduction to it i say you know the things that i share here are my thoughts now and they may yeah, change yeah. you may disagree you may think i'm i'm foolish for what i'm expressing and maybe i will mm-hmm. um, but they're they're what was on my mind at the time so mm-hmm. that's how we've got to now really and that's the whole point of the, the sense of journey, isn't it? Is that mm. there are moments of discovery and, and thoughts. Uh, and then actually, when you come to a different point of the journey, different sort of viewpoint, um, those things can can deepen, those things can change, but it's one journey. And I think that's the important thing. Yeah, and the, this journey, I, I say in my introduction to the book form of my reflections, that it started a long time before I set off from land's end and even before i started planning the route there were things in my life that i think were not necessarily leading me to this moment but were waiting on this moment that there were you know incidents of bereavement and loss in my life that were perhaps still not fully resolved and this was certainly an opportunity to to address some of them Mm. I'm a bit of a surprise. I hadn't planned to do that. But, yeah. but that yeah. journey had begun many years before and, and carries still continues. I think it's it's continued to lead me to this, as I said, this opportunity with the home office and yeah, you know, that awaits me further down this year. Yeah, amazing. Awesome. Well, I think that's it. That's us for episode naught. So that was really good. Uh, we'll dive in tomorrow to, to day one. Uh, yeah. and we'll try not to offend the people of Land's End any more than you already have. Um, and um, yeah, looking forward to the journey. Cool. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Mm-hmm.